right, episode 42 is about to start, you guys, with Eric Cressy. Um, he's one of my idols, and he basically molded my career so far. So we're going to dive into some questions about his take on parenting, uh, how to raise your kids in order for them to find fitness and health as a priority, and what he does as a dad, business owner, to find time to work out, along with questions about his future for his career, and also a question that made him think for the first time, and I was pretty proud to stump him, and this is a great interview, can't wait for you guys to dive into it, and again, check out the website, www.cuttheshitgetfit.com, email me if you have any questions, follow me on um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all that fun stuff, and let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the legendary Eric Cressy. Say hello. How are you? Thanks for having me. No problem. So to break the ice for the whole audience, can you tell them what you're doing this weekend? This weekend, I'm being a dad. But uh, no, first and foremost, I, I, uh, I am at the facility 9 to 2 every, uh, every Saturday morning. So I'm going to come in, I'm going to coach, got a couple of evaluations scheduled, and then um, the week's going to progress from there. But no, weekend is dad time. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so for the one person listening that doesn't know who you are, can you tell them who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Sure thing. Um, you know, the brief, the brief synopsis would be, um, uh, basically I have, uh, two facilities that I co-founded, um, one in Massachusetts and then one here in Jupiter, Florida, where I am now, um, called Cressy Sports Performance. We deal with folks from all walks of life, but really our, our primary niche is, uh, is dealing with baseball players. Um, so we see guys from all 30 different major league organizations. Um, and I kind of split my year between the two locations. Um, in addition to that, I have, you know, web presence with, you know, blog newsletter, social media, stuff like that. So keeps my, my schedule pretty full. Awesome. Um, since you're being a dad, like I've been bringing up this topic with a lot of my previous uh, guests, like how are you going to incorporate like fitness and health with your kids without, you know, kind of going over the top or kind of screwing them up for life essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think I, I, to some degree, I think I'm a little bit blessed because I do see the other end of the spectrum as parents that push too hard and, and put way too much pressure and take the fun out of it. So, um, I think what's been really, really good about our girls is, is somewhat comparable to what we see with, um, like professional athletes who bring their kids to the field or the court or the the rink or whatever sport is they play, like it's not forced on them. It's just something that they see that that dad or mom does. So in our case, um, our girls love coming to the gym. They love coming to hang, hanging out on the TRXs and rolling the stability balls around and throwing med balls and, um, you know, climbing on the power racks and things like that. So our girls have really been here ever since they could walk. Um, so they, they understand that the gym isn't just like a place where people exercise. It's also a social outlet. It's a place they go and, and have a good time and, and see their friends. So, um, I think there's that side of it, but also, I mean, we, we actually go to like a kid's gym twice a week with them and, you know, t- kind of take classes that, you know, aren't just about like, you know, jumping in the balls and running up and down ramps and slides and stuff like that. But I think it's also a, a pretty good social outlet. So I think what our kids have learned really, really well is that um, in many cases, fitness is a, is a conduit to, to being happy, to being around people that you care about and um, being in an unconditionally positive environment. So I think we're almost accidentally creating a, a scenario where it becomes something that becomes habitual for life, whether they decide to be professional athletes whether they decide to play tennis soccer hockey baseball whatever it is i think they're going to accept um you know exercise as part of their life 
That's awesome. How how important do you think it is to have your kids to try all different types of sports rather than like just sticking them into like one thing? I think it's super important. Um, you know, I, I think obviously early on you have to be the one that sticks them into something because they're not going to know to sign up for soccer when they're four. But um, there are just so many unbelievable benefits that come from um, learning to roll with different social circles, right? The, the kids you hang out at soccer are going to be different than the kids you meet at tennis who are going to be different than the kids you meet playing kickball or whatever it is. So I do think that's a, that's a skill that, you know, has applications far beyond just, you know, an athletic realm. It's the kind of stuff you're going to have to deal with when you move from one job to another or when you leave high school and go to college and um, all those things I think really really matter and, and I think that's where you see a lot of kids you know struggle not just with the injuries when they're one sport athletes but I think you also see them that they struggle across different social circles definitely uh, have you noticed like kids younger and younger getting like you know ACL tears and like shoulder issues now that their parents are kind of putting them into sports too early Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. We were talking about that the other day is just that you're actually seeing scenarios where the injuries are outpacing the surgical corrections for them. You know, we have, you know, 11 and 12 year olds with ACL tears that, you know, or, or ulnar collateral ligament tears. You, You can't do surgeries on those people when the growth plate is wide open. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty big deal. When you see stuff that young, you're looking at some pretty substantial arthritic changes down the road. You're looking at compensations in terms of like the arthrokinemax, the joint, people winding up with meniscal problems if they, they leave an ACL uncorrected at a young age. So it's just a, it's definitely a massive, massive problem that's, it honestly isn't getting any better. It's actually probably getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge I think we're all going to have to face in this industry over the next couple of years. Jeez. Yeah, like looking at the parents I train and know like some of their kids are like 13, 14, and they're kind of getting into hockey. And I kind of ask for their schedule, and it's almost like you know, almost every single day is like a two-hour practice, and then weekends are games, and then they do have like a spring camp. And I almost wonder like – if it's almost too much for the kid's schedule because they also have school on top of it, they're tired all the time, they're probably not eating the best. Like, have you seen kids burn out from... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we, we, we see... We see don't just see kids burn out. Like, we see professional athletes who burn out. You know, people who have, like, lived that life just in hopes of getting to that highest level, and then they get there, and they say, screw this. It wasn't worth it. Like, I want to go be a normal human being. So, um, you know, I think that's a a big-time challenge. I think there are are certainly merits to kids – you know, to some degree, kind of filling their schedule. I think it learns, it teaches you how to, to balance competing demands and, you know, really manage an overall schedule. So I do think there's a, a super important dynamic there. But um, yeah, you have to be careful, you know, over scheduling kids. What, what scares me more is when you hear about the six year old that goes to gymnastics for five hours a day, seven days a week. Like, that's <laughs> excessive. It's a lot different if a kid has something scheduled seven days a week, but you know, some of it is, you know, a family dinner on a Sunday or it's, you know, it's gym class on a Tuesday and, you know, baseball on a Thursday. You just be, I'm more leery of when it's the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. It's tough because like parents kind of want their kids to be healthy and happy. And, but then you kind of, if they get into a sport with a coach that, you know, thinks that if I work them as hard as possible, they're going to get better faster and then you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of not the way you should be going with it. Like, yeah. have you ever had like an experience where you have to like almost talk to, you know, the hockey coach or the baseball coach to be like, you should probably not be running them so hard. 
Um, you know, what, what I think we do really, really well is I think we, we nurture relationships with those folks early on. So it never comes to the point that there has to be that awkward conversation like, hey, you're going to give this kid a stress fracture. I think that's something that I've, I've really prided myself on throughout my career is is creating relationships and, and allying ourselves with, with people that, that we care about and, you know, that understand how we approach things and, and respect those methodologies. So I think if you, if you set the stage with good relationships early on, um, you can avoid having those card conversations. What I will say is the thing that's probably changed the most about me from 2007 when we first opened the facility in Massachusetts to 2017 now, um, you know, 10 years later, what I, I'm extremely direct with the parents who I think are overactive. Um, you know, and, and I think, uh, in hindsight, they probably appreciate that, but I will tell them, you know, straight up when they're, they're pushing too hard or doing it the wrong way. So case in point, like, We've had parents that have confessed to me that they send emails to college coaches pretending to be their kids, like reaching out. I'm like, oh, man. like you realize that college coaches know that that's not written by a 16 year old. Like they know it's, it's the parent that's writing it. Like it's very, very abundantly clear because they know what 16 year olds write like and things like <laughs> that. So, um, you know, there are times when they're, they're completely misdirected in their efforts and, um, you know, sometimes they need to be put back into, you know, kind of, I don't want to say put into their place on it, but, you know, put back online with what's, you know, acceptable. But I think the thing that probably, um, for me is the biggest red flag is during the initial meeting, um, you know, with a kid, when a parent sits in on an evaluation is, it's a huge red flag for me when the parents talk 90% of the time and the kid barely gets a word in. So what I always try to do when I see that starting up is I redirect the conversation directly back to the kid. As I say, you know, what do you think? Or how did you feel when this happened? Or what do you feel like you need to work on it? I always make eye contact with the kid and intentionally go out of my way to avoid eye contact with the parent when that's the case. Um, and there's certainly exceptions to the rule on that. Like if a 14 year old kid who's got a massive injury history comes in, like I'm definitely going to defer to the parents because I know they're the ones that have the radiology reports and know what they did for physical therapy and when they were there and stuff. But, you know, we're talking about a generally healthy kid who's, you know, pretty untrained and, you know, like you're, you're trying to like gauge their level of interest in actually being there, you know, is it their interest or is it their dad's, um, or their mom's, you know, so it's, it's, it's definitely a, a super challenging dynamic, but, um, I think over the years I've kind of learned to navigate those waters a little bit more tactfully. Yeah. I find it's usually like the dad that kind of chooses the sport for their kid. Cause it's like either yeah. they played that in college or high school and they're trying to like relive through their kid. Yeah. Like, would you go down that route with your, like your two daughters? Like, Hey, you no. should play this sport or no, I'm a, I, I think you have to be a massive realist in, in that mm -hmm. if you actually like, like I, I spend my world around baseball players. Right. Um, so there's, there's two things that happen with that. First off, when that crazy parent comes in, like to, to be honest, like, and this is going to sound arrogant. I don't want it to be that, but like, I, I don't need their business. Like I really, really mean that in the nicest way possible is just that like we have a Cy Young award winner that trains at our Massachusetts facility, a Cy Young award winner at our Florida facility. I could literally drop everything, close both facilities and, and work as a consultant in professional baseball and not deal with like any of these headaches. So I think to some degree it throws like this, a little bit of a velvet rope around our business. We're like, I'm doing this because I care about your kid and because I think I can help him and I want to help him. So let me help him. Um, is, is kind of my way of looking at it. But I think, you know, to your other point is, you know, would I ever like, you know, mortgage the farm to try to push my kids to do it? No, because I'm in professional baseball. 7% of guys ever drafted. If you look at the average, um, you know, you see across different organizations actually make it to the big leagues. Like, so if you really look at those numbers, like, you know, if we bring a thousand new players 
into professional baseball, about 70 of them are ever going to make it to the major leagues where they make a livable wage. Um, the challenging about that is in many cases they live below the poverty line for for five to seven years in order to get there. And then if you look at the percentage of guys that actually get to the big leagues, how many of them like make it big? Um, it's, it's incredibly low. Like, and when I say make it big, they make it through, you know, three to four years at my, at major league minimum and actually get to a point where they get to arbitration, make some money for three years before they get to free agency. Very rarely do you see guys get to the big leagues and, and you know, retire at 37 and never have to work again. More of the big leaguers we see, like I don't mean we, like as in Crest Sports Performance clients, but just in general, most of the guys that you see playing on your TV in Major League Baseball get there and they, they have what we call a cup of coffee in the big leagues. They, they're up there for 37 days and they make 150 grand. And those are the guys that in many cases are retired from baseball at 38. In many cases, they don't have a college degree. They're, they're in a challenging position and, you know, they need to go and coach baseball or sell cars or be insurance salesmen or go back to school and become accountants. Like they, they all wind up having like jobs at some point, like the Mike Trouts, the Albert Pujols, like the, the David Wrights, like these guys are, are incredibly financially successful, but they aren't the majority. They're far, far, far away from it. It's, it's really hard to go and play college baseball after being a good high school player. It's even harder to go from college and play professional. It's insanely hard to make it from minor league baseball to the big leagues. Like I have people who are absurd workers who couldn't do it. Like that, you know, and it breaks my heart. I want all of our guys that put in the work to get there, but not all of us can hit a 98 mile an hour fastball <laughs> when, when at the same time we have to think that a slider might be coming. So, you know, to get back to my point is that it's, it's, it's such a low, low, low probability of being that guy that makes 200 million and never has to work again, that you're, you're crazy to, to mortgage the farm and go after it with your kids. Um, what you're better off doing is saying, you know, I want, I want to have a good relationship with my children for the rest of my life. I want them to be happy and healthy in what they do. Um, and if, you know, by, by a, a struck of good look and the, the grace of God, they, they do make it. And I'm going to be thrilled for it. I'm going to support it, but I'm going to support my daughter, whether she wants to go to the state championship in gymnastics or cheerleading or tennis or accounting or, you know, drama or whatever it is that she decides to do. Like that's something that, you know, I'm going to support. So I, I think we, we, we have a lot of people that aren't realists for this stuff. Like I'm five foot eight and my, my wife is five foot three. Our girls aren't going to be like <laughs> five foot 11, you know, elite crew or basketball or volleyball players. Like we, you have to understand there's a realism aspect of this. Um, but what I think you do is you, you, you put your kids in a position to be successful, you support them and you let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, there's a coach named Jason Glass, and he's big into yeah. golf. And I was chatting with him before about with his kids when, because he wants them to play golf, obviously. Yeah. But he said like when they'll go to the driving range, he'll you know fill up the bucket, they'll start going through it, and then at the last quarter, he'll be like, "All right, we're going home." And his kids yeah. like, "Oh no, I want to keep playing." He's like, well, "Well, we'll play another time." And he's like, "In this way, like." you're not overusing their arms and limbs and everything like that. And they have a good experience leaving because they want to do it again. And they're looking forward to it. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. Yeah. I, sorry. I think you cut out on me there for a second. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just saying that's a really good idea yeah. to kind of 
implement that into your kids where it's like they're having a lot of fun and then you're like, all right, like we got to get home and then just <laughs> looking forward to it the next time they're out playing whatever sport they're playing. Exactly. Never get to the point where they, they're angry at you and they're, they want to leave, like let, leave them hanging a little bit where they want more. Um, but, but, you know, I think the thing to remember too is, and I use this example with respect to like movement variability and stuff, but like think about the, the first time you take a kid to a carnival or a fair or something like that, you know, like their heads bouncing around like crazy. They're like excited to like see new things and get exposed to, you know, whether it's like, a, you know, seeing the characters at Disney or the rides or something like that, like they're fired up for novelty where our bodies are, you know, our, our brains are wired for novelty. It's why people, you know, are refreshing Twitter and, you know, click and refresh on Facebook all the time. Right. So kids want that as well. Like the last thing you want to do is like dull that, that sense of novelty by just like telling them that they're going to go and, you know, play golf every single day. Um, so it's just a, it's a challenging dynamic that I think we have to manage, but when we expose them to a wide variety of movement patterns, they, they understand a lot of different strategies for encountering whatever life throws at them and they, they build a, you know, motor program to handle those things. Nice. Yeah. Um, the next thing I was going to ask you, like, I always like asking coaches that are in this industry, how their spouses react to like fitness and health. Cause like an example is like with my wife, she hates me telling her what to do in the gym. But if I, I set her with a program and we go together, she has fun and everything like that. So what's kind of the dynamic with you and your wife when it comes to fitness and health? It's funny. My, my wife and I started dating in April of 2007. And um, she, my wife was actually a – she was an athlete growing up. She was actually a softball player. She had softball, swimming, um, and field hockey in high school. Went to college actually to play softball. Got there and actually uh, her first winner there fell in love with crew. And she wound up not playing softball. Instead, she was crew. She was captain of the crew team. Um, and actually, one of her teammates wound up like winning multiple medals in the Olympics and stuff. So like she's been around like – that at a high level. So when I met her, it was after the fact she was actually in optometry school at the time and in Boston and she was getting more into like, you know, she'd go for a run and just maintain that and all that stuff. But she had to like kind of banged up knees from running or low back would bother her sometimes. So we started dating. I knew from previous experiences with both like family members and girlfriends that I, my rule was I never would touch it. I don't want to write diet programs. I don't want to write training programs. I will not train a significant other or family member. I just, I'd gotten burned too many times on it. It always backfires. <laughs> and you have that, you know, that uncle that, or not, not an uncle, but like you have those family members that reach out to you and say, Hey, send me a program. And you put in a half hour into it and then they never follow it. So I just was like, screw this. I'm not going to do it to her credit. She was very persistent. Um, and it was actually a, a, a pretty funny dynamic. I don't know if you know, you got, you know, Kevin Larrabee, um, yep, who hosts yep. Fitcast. Kevin's one of my like longest friends in the fitness industry. Um, and what actually happened when I moved back to Boston, Boston in 2006, um, Kevin was still in school and he was like, just looking to like get more experience. And I knew him through the Fitcast and through like seminars and stuff. I was like, Hey man, just come in and train with some of my groups. So he was like, let's do this. So he actually for an entire summer, um, like in the summer or sorry, spring, summer of 07, he would like come down. He was a client. He trained with my guys and he was awesome. I really made some, some good progress, got a lot stronger, but he wanted to start getting some like experience in the industry. So I'm like, all right, this is the perfect dynamic. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to let Kevin train Anna. He needs the experience. She wants coaching and I stay the hell out of it. <laughs> um, and it was perfect. So like we, we joked that Kevin was Anna's first personal trainer and he worked with her for a few sessions and really got the ball rolling, like taught her how to do glute ham raise and she got into it. And, um, 
what was pretty interesting, I'd say, was that it, it was really her first exposure to like regular strength training. Like she she cut back a lot on the amount of cardio she did. Um, you know, she started lifting more and more. We were hanging out more, so I think you know a lot of my dietary habits probably like to some degree rubbed off on her. And like her body changed actually pretty rapidly over the course of, of several months. She'd tell you the same thing. I don't, I don't remember what like the weight loss was or anything like that, but she was a, a markedly different, you know, physique within, you know, four to six months there. So she, it kind of sold itself. And, and I kind of like excused myself to the process that said, um, I'm, I'm sitting at my computer now. So I'll tell you, I've, I've written programs for her since probably 2007. That fall was the, was when I really started getting involved And in. literally I've written a program for Anna Every month, um, you know, since, oh, let's see, uh, September of 2007. Wow. So we're literally, she's probably my, my, my almost my decade long client. And it's hilarious. She, I have a programming board at our facility where, you know, if, you know, Bob Smith needs a program for Monday, they write it off my board. They say how many days per week it is and, and what the date it is. And, and she'll just write wife, you know, by April 10th or something <laughs> like that. So it's up on my board right now. Um, so to that end, uh, honestly, it's very easy now. We eat very, very similarly. Um, you know, we grocery shop together, we cook together. Um, in many cases we'll live together whenever we have like nanny coverage or a, a family member in town who can watch the girls. There've been times when we brought the girls into the gym with us. Um, so I, there, there's actually really no challenges on that front. Um, you know, like she follows whatever I put on paper and it works out pretty well. That's awesome. How do you find balance with like being a business owner, coaching and being a dad? Like how do you structure your day to make sure you fit everything in? Um, I, I, I'll say this. I'm not good at it. Uh, <laughs> that's a challenge. That's usually why I'm up way too early and why I wake up at like 3 a.m. staring off into blackness thinking about, <laughs> thinking about what I need to do next. Um, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have some really good people to help us help out, obviously Anna being one of them. But on top of that, um, you know, we have uh, nannies that, that help out one in Massachusetts, one in Florida. So I'm um, having those people, we don't really have a whole lot of family nearby. So it's, it's, we're, we're really spoiled when, you know, a grandmother or somebody like that comes and helps out. But, um, I think, you know, there are two things I would just say is one, I have twin daughters. And when you, when you have twins, the, the first thing you learn is that schedule is everything. Like you have to have consistency. You have to be rigidly adhering to that schedule because if you have two kids the same age who are on different nap schedules, your life is horrible. Um, you have to keep them on the same schedule. So we've learned that. And I think to that end, like that programs yourself to be on a schedule, like you have to be adherent. And, um, you know, what I need to be better about is saying, Hey, I'm going to be home by four or 30, like walking in at four is not okay. Um, that's not fair to my wife. Cause in many cases she's had crazy kids all day and she's, she's waiting for like a, a reprieve. So, you know, in that case I, I do that. I think the other thing too, is just, uh, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is how inefficient they are. Like I, I thought I was busy before I had kids and I had kids. I'm like, this is this, that was nothing. I would kill for those days when, you know, I could just have a half an hour to screw around and watch YouTube videos. Like there, it just pushes so many things out of your life that aren't important at all. Like I look back to like all the years, like that I was like on like forums, just like answering random questions and things like that. And now I wish I could go back in time and just like read books instead or, or get out and, you know, do something else, volunteer at a soup kitchen or something. It's just so much more productive than wasting time on the internet. So, um, you know, I've, I've certainly pared back in different places. Um, you know, like to be honest, like I got five podcast, uh, invitations yesterday. Like, and wow. it's, 
you know, one of them came by a text from a mutual friend and then four from people I, I never talked to. And, you know, you have requests for guest blogs and this, that, and the other, you you really can't do it for everybody. So what you do is you, you kind of have to learn to say no a lot more. And that's the one thing that I think, you know, (laughs) kids have taught me above all else is that you have to prioritize your time because if you give your time to everybody else, the really, at the end of the day, the people who suffer the most are your family. They're the ones that don't get time with you. So I've, I've had to get really, really good at that. And it's meant walking away from some really, really good opportunities and, you know, see where it takes us. So I feel very honored for you to be on my podcast now. (laughs) Um, Thanks for having me. It's all good. (laughs) Um, So when you had your two daughters, like, how did your kind of life change in the way of like keeping your strength up and like going to the gym to work out? Like, did you have to take off some time from the gym and kind of just focus on your kids or did you keep your workouts at kind of like a priority? Cause it just makes you sane. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. There's kind of like two ways to answer that question. I think the, the, there's an old saying, uh, the problem with self-employment is that your boss is always an asshole. Um, and I, I hate to swear, but it's, it's a quote, so I'm going to use it, but, that's fine. um, that's, that's, that's the honest to goodness truth. Like people who don't own businesses don't understand what it's like to own a business and they never will until they're put in those shoes. Um, so I'll give you a fair reference. My, my wife was actually due, uh, she was scheduled for a C-section on December 17th, 2014, which would have been like 38 weeks. And um, she actually woke up at 5 a.m. the morning after Thanksgiving. So it was Black Friday morning and her water broke. So I was like, all right, we're doing this today. So we went in and we had a kid on that Friday. Um, here's the craziest example I can tell you is that we had a kid and his uh, uh, who came down, uh, uh, basically a junior college catcher, his family decided to come down and spend Thanksgiving week here in Jupiter to train with us. Um, so he came from Alabama. Um, I did his evaluation on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving and I, we weren't open on Thanksgiving, obviously. So I, uh, I was planning to write the program Friday morning before I headed into the gym. So I got woken up at 5 a.m., raced to the hospital, and I wrote his program in the waiting room at Jupiter Hospital while <laughs> with, with, with scrubs on before we went in for my wife's C-section. I sent the program in to the facility from the Wi-Fi at the hospital. Um, you know, like it's just, People who are employees don't have to do that. Somebody covers for them. Somebody picks up the slack. Um, another employee steps in. You you call on a substitute teacher, like, um, or your boss does it. Like when you're the boss, you don't get that wiggle room. Um, so I wanted to make sure the program was ready. So uh, to be honest, the only day I got off really was Friday. On Saturday, I had to pop in um, to take care of some stuff that I had left undone. Not only that, we had a few other athletes who had been in town that week to see me, and I wanted to make sure I saw them off because um, I felt bad about missing the last you know two days of their training. So I was in here. Uh, uh, less than 36 hours after my daughters were born. That said, it was a, a 20 minute pop in Sunday afternoon. This is the other part of the answer. My wife was like, you need to get out of here and go exercise. I know how you get if you don't train. So I came in on a Sunday afternoon and got a quick upper body lift in like 48 hours after my girls were born. And actually the funny part about it was, um, while I was here, I was like, you know, I should really do some content for the blog just because like, I'm not going to have a chance to do anything. So one of our other interns was in here lifting that afternoon. I was like, Hey, do you mind if we just film a quick video? So actually you can, you can still see the video. I did a tutorial on how to do a landmine press and I had my hospital bracelet on, um, while I was actually <laughs> doing it. Um, I can't, it's like fine tuning landmine press technique or whatever like this. But the funny part was, was when I posted the video, I literally had like dozens of people that were like, oh my gosh, is everything okay? I see you have a hospital brace on. Did you get hurt? Like oh, what's man. going on? And I'm like, no, it's great news. I'm a dad, I'm a dad. But um, like to your point, like you just, 
when, when something like that comes up, like you just, you keep going and you keep plugging away. And what do you do that? You know, you, you kind of sacrifice other things, but I actually read a, um, a really cool article. It was like, I think it was uh, Randy Zuckerberg who had a tweet like several years ago um, that you could, you really had to pick three out of the five things. You have work, you have family, um, you have friends, you have sleep, and you have fitness. And you have to pick three of those. And I was like, you know, like that's, that's, a, that's an eye-opening thing. And I'm looking at my life. I'm like, well, family obviously has to be part of it. Work is, is part of that because I have so many employees that depend on me and there's like this, this monster that you kind of, kind of have to keep feeding when you're writing regularly and doing social media and all this stuff. Um, and then, you know, fitness, those are the three, cause I know how cranky I get if I don't train. So the things that were obviously pushed out were, were sleep and friends. And, you know, those are, those are hard things to push out. Uh, it made it a little bit easier cause we were kind of new in this area and hadn't met a ton of people and business was, was high priority. But, um, you know, looking back on that, I, I see that as a challenge now that our clients that they have to, they have to encounter and they have to make those same challenging things. And I understand why certain people aren't fit, why that gets pushed out of their life when life is busy and they have screaming children at home and things like that. It's, it's, it's a challenging dynamic. So I think it's, it's a good reminder to us as fitness professionals to have a little bit of empathy, to appreciate what our clients go through and figure, Hey, this guy's probably only getting three hours of sleep at night. That's why he's not making it in for his sessions. Like, how can we make this easier? What can I do to get him in and out in 45 minutes when I know he doesn't have an hour and a half to do this session? All right, I can get him a foam roller. He can do some of that on his own at home before he goes to bed. Like, um, you know, and maybe we can use the gym as an avenue through which he can spend time with friends. So, and effectively we take those five and maybe we kind of, we kind of condense them into four. So it's a little bit easier, but um, people have a lot of competing demands, not just for their, you know, their recovery capacity, but also for their attention. So, um, I learned a lot. Teaching kids, uh, gave me a, a much more informed perspective to, um, or having kids, I should say, gave me an informed perspective for, for dealing with our clients. Yeah. What you brought up with the like top three thing, like uh, I was interviewing coach Steve-O and he said that when he coaches people, he says, you know, if you can get fitness and health and the number five, like the top five, like priority list, like you've made some leeway as a coach. And I was like, yeah. that makes so much sense. And I like, get opened my eyes when he told me that. And I started communicating that to my clients that like, Hey, if you make fitness and health in your top five, then you're going to be okay. And they almost like, they were saying that it almost like took off the stress of always thinking like, Oh, I need to go work out. Oh, I need to like prep food. And it just gave them more space to breathe almost. And I'm like, that's the way to do it. Like, that's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the the best thing people don't realize is I think when we come up through the ranks, we, we think all about periodization and we think about coaching cues and this, that, and the other and all this stuff. I'm like, none of it matters if you aren't good at getting through to people and making it an engaging environment that gets them excited about improving. Like I'm, I'm spoiled. I deal with professional athletes a ton and those guys are, if they're, if they're not motivated, they're out of a job. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, it's a lot more challenging to, to tell that, you know, 37 year old woman who's, you know, just had her third kid and is sleeping three hours a night and trying to breastfeed. Um, and you know, her husband's away at work all day and you're trying to say, you really need to get up and come in for that 5am class so you can work out, um, before, uh, you know, you know, the, he leaves for the day. But here's something that's really interesting though. I was actually, uh, I was talking, we have a client who's a podiatrist and this is like a total change of pace, but, um, we have a client who's a podiatrist and, um, he actually put three stitches in my foot like a month ago. So while he was working on my foot, we were like, 
talking about this and he's and I got to ask him like, Oh, what kind of procedures do you do in the office? And he's like, you know what we do? We do toe amputations every day. I do four or five of them every day. I'm like, man, you do that in the office. Like that's not even in the hospital. He's like, it's mundane at this point. I do so many amputations. You wouldn't believe it. He goes 20% of diabetics will have some kind of amputation. And when they're smokers, that number goes to 70%, which is like scary. So like think about it this way, like taking that a step further, we got the conversation developed and we were talking about a, somebody we knew who, uh, who's on dialysis, you know, diabetes got really, really bad to the point that there was complete kidney failure and they needed to do dialysis. That individual had dialysis 6am to 8am Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So like you think about it, like they're accountable to that. Like if you don't come and do dialysis at 6am, you're going to die. But think about that same person had just been accountable to that schedule for the previous 20 years. And they had gone to the gym at 6 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday to work out instead of just sitting in that chair to have their, their blood filtered, basically. So it's, it's a very, very interesting dynamic. And we need to find ways to, like, get those, uh, I guess, those messages across to people. is like, if you invest a little bit now, it's going to save you a lot later. We need that mom to realize that, hey, she's probably going to feel a lot more energetic throughout the day. Um, you know, over the course of, of that time, she does come in and exercise early. Hey, maybe it's also going to give her some clarity because one of her friends is going to come in and work out at that time. Um, hey, maybe it's the kind of thing that the training is going to prepare her so that she doesn't throw out her back picking up her kid, you know, one day. So there's, there's all these hidden benefits that I think we have to try to convey to people. We have to get it through to them, um, and, and make them realize that it's not going to be hard to get, you know, fitness into that top five. Um, so I, I I think that's the fun part of the job is if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, but it's not. Yeah. I, I find it so interesting, like human behavior when it comes to like fitness and health, where an example would be like if you have a client coming in, they're pretty regular, and then out of nowhere, you know, they miss one session, they're back for the next one, then the next week they're completely gone, and then they kind of start just canceling on you and canceling on you, and you're like, where the hell did you go? And then they eventually come back and they're like, oh, I've been going through this and this. I just had to have some time off. And they're kind of going through that weird funk and cycle of like off and on, off and on. But they're not really getting anywhere. And those are like the clients I always kind of struggle with. And I'm like, what can I do to help you? Like, have you ever had an experience like that before? Um, I think we all have for yeah. sure. Um, you know, and I don't think that. I think that's what draws us back. You know, it's like going to play golf where you, uh, you know, you have like a, a, a terrible round and then you sink like a 30 foot putt and it's like the golf gods drawing <laughs> you back in. So I, I think the, you know, we all seek out those moments for sure. Um, because we appreciate the challenge and we appreciate the reward. Yeah. I, I always try to figure out some little thing to like, if it's like changing their time, if it's like, maybe we just drop down to once a week, at least you're getting yeah. something in, like anything will do. And, it's just interesting. Like I've had even clients where they're, you know, regular and then they just disappear on you and you don't hear back from them at all. And then six months later, they're like, all right, I'm back. Like, where did you go? (laughs) It happened. It happens all the time. You know, I think the other ones too are like, I think sometimes like small hinges swing big doors. Like, uh, you'll have a client that, um, you know, needs to have like a, like a mole removed or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, they shouldn't be out for like a week and a half while the stitches are settling. And instead you don't see them for six months. You know, it's very easy to slip into bad patterns and continue that stuff. Like we, we have to, I think that's the biggest problem with the fitness industry is that 
we don't really understand what our clients is like. We're not, we're not related. We don't relate to them nearly as well as you can think. Like I think Thomas Plummer had a post on Facebook about it in the last couple of weeks where he just like talking about like, stop just hiring people that are fitness fanatics, hire people who are realists who relate to other people. Um, like other people don't understand why I go two weeks without deadlifting and I hate my life and, and, you know, and, and cranky. Like that doesn't, that's not part of other people's vocabulary. It's not who they are. Um, you know, like, like I, I know one of the things that like drives me bonkers, like when we have like pro baseball guys that like they go and they throw seven innings and the first thing they want to do when they come out of a game is have a cold beer. Like I remember hearing a story that like Randy Johnson did that after like every start in his major league career. And he's one of the best of all time. It's like, you know, obviously having a beer is like the single worst thing you can do from a recovery standpoint right after you finish exercise. But you know, like I, I'm not a beer drinker. Like I don't really enjoy the taste. I never really have. And, um, you know, I think about it from a physiological standpoint. I don't think about it from a social standpoint. I don't think about it from like a stress relaxation standpoint. At the end of the day, having a beer after you pitch every five days probably isn't a huge game changer. <laughs> so, um, you really got to, I, I think, kind of sometimes put your, yourself in the shoes of your clients and figure out what's driving their behaviors. Do you think coaches that had like their own weight loss story or they went through something that's similar to the client have like almost the advantage of coaching them to success? Sometimes. Okay. I, I think it can be a deceiving thing. I, I think, um, put it this way, you and I both know that the person who goes from 500 pounds to 220 pounds, it's 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 impressive. It's not remarkably challenged from a purely physio- physiological standpoint. I think we can both agree on that, right? That's yeah. literally – those people can lose 100 pounds in three months just by walking on the treadmill or riding the bike and, like, not drinking soda. Like, it can be that pronounced to change that quickly. So from they may miss – or may underestimate what is required physiologically to take that guy who's 200 pounds that wants to get back to 170 pounds that he weighed when he was in college. That part I think is, is something they miss out on. Certainly like the, uh, they probably understand the dynamic of what it takes, um, to be successful and be consistent. So they understand the, probably the psychology very well, but maybe not the physiology as well. I know for me personally, like I had a really bad shoulder and, I still kind of do. I've learned how to work around it. That taught me a ton about how to manage shoulder issues. Like it's why I'm very, very comfortable in what I do. And I'm, I'm kicking a can down the road on a surgery for 15 plus years. So, um, I think, I think it can help, but it doesn't always help. It's, it's, it's probably, uh, more of a correlation than causation. All right. Fair enough. Um, I wanted to jump in for a question I got from Instagram from, uh, Laura. She messaged me asking, uh, I have a ACL meniscus tear, but several years post-reconstruction, I have arthritis, a ligament strain, fluid buildup, bursitis, IT band syndrome, etc. And I would love to hear Cressy's take on overuse and overtraining. Does he believe in either of them? Generally, physicians prescribe long periods of rest only to have issues resurface. Yeah, I, I, first off, I absolutely do believe in, in overtraining. Like it, it's, it's, a, it's a clinically documented yeah. thing. It's very hard to overtrain. You, we have to look at like um, at different kinds, right? So what you deal with with like high intensity overtraining, which is very hard to monitor, and really the only thing that that tells us it's taking place 
if you look at like the research from Kramer and Fry back in like 94 at the University of Memphis, like they said, the only way we can really evaluate it is a drop in performance, which doesn't help us a whole lot. We have to get to that point to realize it's there. If you look at like the high or sorry, the high uh, volume training, like in marathoners, swimmers, things like that, those folks have like a volume induced overtraining scenario that we can definitely appreciate that it happens from like a, an endocrine standpoint, testosterone to cortisol ratios change. So things like that are very important. So overtraining absolutely does exist. What I would tell you is the average gym goer would have to really, really try a lot harder to get to that point. More often than not, what they're dealing with is they're, they're overreach and they're accumulating quite a bit of volume in a short amount of time and they need to take a step back to recharge. Whereas like true clinical overtraining, like you're talking about like, it's like paralleling the signs of, um, you know, clinical depression and stuff like that. So, um, what I think it, what we're talking about in, in Laura's case is we're talking about a, a joint limitation to overall fitness capacity, right? So she wants to be able to get fit and train hard, but there's a limiting factor at her joint that's not allowing her to get there. She's, you know, she's got an ACL and meniscus, so the arthrokinematics of the joint are all out of whack. She's got arthritic changes there. Um, I can't remember what else you listed there. There's bursitis, there's fluid buildup in the knee. So, like, that's something that, you know, certainly is a, a probably a more clinical dynamic like that person may do really really well if they just drain the flu from the knee and she gets six months of pain-free exercise and as it turns out the you know the meniscus and the acl were somewhat incidental findings that person may do well with anti-inflammatories to treat the bursitis component there's there's different things that could work really really well for her um what I think is the, the kind of the easy answer from my end of the spectrum is, hey, you know, you refer out, you find a good ortho, you find a good physical therapist to take the lead on that. But if we're talking about training in the meantime, what you do is you do exactly what Stuart McGill has put out there with respect to low backs is you, you figure out what the, the pain-free exercise repertoire is. Maybe for that person, it's a, it's a barbell supine bridge, single leg hip thrust off a bench. Maybe she does well with some reverse sled drags. Maybe it's isometric holds. Maybe it's, you know, whatever it may be. There, there's something that she can do pain-free to deliver a training effect that A, allows her to, to maintain or improve her fitness, and B, allows her to potentially improve movement quality um, that's going to make uh, her knee feel better. Um, and I think what you find is when you do that well, whether it's a shoulder, an elbow, a knee, a hip, whatever it is, um, you're going to have scenarios where, where people's pain-free repertoire expands over the course of time. And this has parallels to what we see with like the selective functional movement assessment, right? They talk about always chase the the DN patterns, right? The dysfunctional, non-painful patterns. Um, don't chase the pain. Um, and, you know, so in many cases you look at what doesn't move well that isn't painful and you kind of attack that and see where it takes us. All that said, we're talking about arthritic knee. I don't know Laura from, from Eve, so she very well could be 67 years old and an unbelievable candidate for a knee replacement, which could change her life dramatically. So it's a, it's a hard question to answer without knowing a little bit more about her, but, sure, um, yeah. Now that's that there's a brain dump for you how's that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a good answer though because I, I also find it interesting with some people like they like injure their knee or hip and they're like well i can't work out anymore and you're like well th- what's wrong with your upper body what's wrong with this yeah. like there's always ways around good yeah, yeah. Every, everything's in a good place aside from that um a thing that i wanted to kind of jump on which um i think it would be an interesting question is like your your career is pretty successful. Like everybody that looks up to you, like they're like, oh man, Eric Cressy's like the man, right? But what is your kind of like, if it's someone said, if you had to define success, like what would your definition or who do you look up to that's successful? Um, you know, I, th- I think you look to a lot of different 
like places, you know, we talk about role models. Like I, I look at my mom, like my mom is the principal of my hometown high school. Like we go to the grocery store and it takes like three hours to buy like a, a banana and a bag of vegetables because, you know, she has like so many adoring parents that want to stop and thank her for what they've done for her kids and all that stuff. So like, you know, I, I think impact is certainly part of that. Um, you know, obviously there, there, I think you have to really like, um, you have to have different buckets in your life that, you know, you understand how to check those boxes and, you know, you fill the buckets that are the most empty, you know, like you can be a, a phenomenal husband and, you know, a phenomenal father and make no income and your family's broke and has no home. Like, so obviously the income bucket needs to be brought around rather than just, you know, spend 24 hours a day with your, your kids and your wife. So like, you know, I, I think it's really, really hard to gauge success. So what I would say is I, I probably measure success more than anything else on balance. You know, how is it that you, you continue to challenge yourself to grow your business and to deliver a quarterly product to your, your clients while at the same time continuing to develop and learn and be challenged as a professional while at the same time making sure that you're spending enough, um, you know, time with your, with your family, like, so where you're not just present, but you're, you're having a presence. Um, so I think those are the things that you look at. So for me, I think, you know, if you'd asked me in, in 2013, it would have been very much defined by, you know, revenue targets and how many blogs I wrote in a year and, you know, uh, you know, what, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I think now it's, it's defined in a much more complex way, um, that isn't easy to clearly define. So, um, I, I would say balance is probably the best way you can, you can describe it. Awesome. Now, if you had to give advice to your like early twenties self, like what would you tell Eric in his early twenties? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I would, I told Eric to quit wasting so much time on the internet, like, uh, you know, spend more, you can tell him, you know, I would, I would tell him you get paid for done. Um, so get out and do more of that. And I, and I, you know, I look back and I did, I did a lot of things correctly back then. I'm, you know, I'm glad I started writing so early. I glad I, you know, started getting out and speaking at seminars and things like that. I'm glad I started a newsletter list. Like there are a lot of things I would have said. I would have said, Hey, you know, get started on Twitter and Instagram sooner. And, um, you know, stuff like that, that you never really think of that in hindsight could have been really, um, impactful for your business. But, um, you know, I, I, I try not to live with, with too many regrets. Um, you know, I think you, uh, you, you are where you are because of how you worked or, you know, what you did or didn't and it all shapes you in a different way. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have like dramatic things. I, the only thing I would say is that chances are I, uh, I probably would not have put my name on my business. So that's probably <laughs> the biggest thing I could tell, you know, 25 year old Eric Cressy is don't put Cressy, um, on a business. What, what would you've called your gym? Do you have that's, like a, a, and, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We, uh, we, 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 we almost had to get to that point. We thought about rebranding it. And then I had a couple of people I trusted who were like, you'd be crazy to take it off now just cause you, you branded it. So, um, definitely, uh, one of those things where hindsight, I guess it's 2020. There you go. Uh, what's your kind of like vision and goal now for Cressy performance going forward and say like the next 10 years, like what are kind of the big boxes that you want to check off? Yeah, you know what's really funny about that is I I think that's a, a incredibly hard question to answer sure. because if you would ask me in two thousand say two thousand four right because um, we you know we'll, we'll use two thousand fourteen as an example just because that was when we opened our second location with CSP if you would ask me what I would be doing when I was in two thousand two thousand four I was in grad school 
Um, I was still up in the air on whether I wanted to go into strength conditioning or whether I wanted to go into like research in the like exercise endocrinology realm. Um, so I was very unclear about that. Within the next year, I fell in love with strength conditioning and I kind of decided that I, I probably would wind up being a college strength conditioning coach. Um, so that was like into 2015. I actually looked at a lot of those positions and ultimately decided to go to the private sector just to see how it would go. In 03 to 05, I dealt almost exclusively with basketball and soccer players. Um, it wasn't until 2006 when I moved to Boston I started working with baseball players and really kind of fell in love with that population. I never had any aspirations when we opened the new, the first facility in 2007 of being like a baseball-only guy. I thought you know, we wanted a comprehensive clientele. We wanted adult clients. We wanted triathletes. We wanted everything imaginable. Um, and, you know, the baseball niche kind of took on, uh, took off, but, you know, I never expected to have to open another facility. Um, we did that, you know, seven years later, we grew out of a 3,300 square foot spot, went to a 6,600 square foot spot, and then a 7,600 square foot spot, and then a 15,000 square foot spot, um, and then a second location in Florida. When I met my wife in 2007, verbatim, I said to her, I never want to own a gym. <laughs> To a T. So here we are in 2017, 10 years later, and you're saying, what do you think the next 10 years will hold? I have no idea. Um, I, I have specific strategies that, that I am acting upon you know, to grow things in different realms and to you know, outsource things that I don't feel I'm good at that I can get better help with. But I think it's a, it's a pipe dream for anybody. And you know, I, I'm 35 years old and I can't do it. So I don't think a, a 20 or 25-year-old can be expected to do it. Uh, 10 years is a really, really long time. I actually had hair 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> so that should tell you just about everything you need to know. So I, I don't know that I believe in the concept of five to 10 years because think about it this way. Like, there are 19-year-old girls who are making millions of dollars posting pictures of their butt on Instagram. Yeah. Instagram, <laughs> Instagram didn't exist 10 years ago. So, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where we don't really, um, I think, understand where, you know, the digital medium is going. We don't understand the level of specialization that may be employed in our industry. We don't understand a lot of things. So I think it's really, really unrealistic to to look at that long of a time frame. Um, you know, here, here's a, a pretty crazy example. I think it was uh, 25 consecutive quarters of growth for Chipotle. Like, wow. I mean, I love Chipotle. Like, that's, that's unheard of. Like, that doesn't, like that means that they were growing no matter what the season is. Like you look at our business, right? Like we go like gangbusters, you know, when, you know, the new year's resolutions folks like yeah. for us, we get super quiet this time of year. Why? The baseball players actually have to play baseball. And then we, we surge when the off season's around. So there's a very cyclical nature of it. So the idea of being quarter to quarter growth is, is really unheard of in the fitness industry. But like in other industries, you would think, Hey, People are probably eating less Chipotle at the holidays, right? They're going to like holiday parties and, you know, some people are, you know, from a religious standpoint, eating specific foods at specific times of the year. Like there are reasons for Chipotle sales to fall off at certain times of the year. And they did it for 25 consecutive quarters. And the only thing that basically caused them to fall off and their stock, you know, basically plummeted was when people started getting sick. I think it was actually at some of the Boston locations with norovirus. It's like you could never have asked their CEOs to look you know, 25 quarters, what's that? How many years? <laughs> so you're looking at six years plus, like to, to look six years in advance and be like, you know what, we really need to figure out how to make sure our employees don't get people sick with norovirus. Like who's to say it wouldn't have been Ebola or AIDS or whatever it is. Like these are, these are really like, I mean, stupid like things to even talk about. But if you really think about it, like there's no way to project everything that could come your way. So having like this meticulously laid out five to 10 year plan where you're really bold and saying, you're going to do this, like, 
it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, did, when you were growing up, did you ever expect Adidas to buy Reebok? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, because the, because the pumps were the bomb. They were everything, you know, and you know, it's just, it's just a different world. So I think you gotta, we gotta separate ourselves from like the, the concept of a five to 10 year plan and really execute well on the, probably the, the six to 24 month plan. Yeah, definitely. Like I was just thinking about the other day, like Kodak, for example, like they yeah. were ahead of the game of everyone on like photos and cameras and then they just died out because they didn't want to, yeah. you know, get with the time. So it's a really fast game. And like, especially with social media, like I think it was maybe probably less than a year ago, like that app Vine, it just completely yeah. stopped because yeah. no one was using it anymore. And that was kind of the first time like a major app was a ghost town almost, right? So it's it's pretty scary how fast industries are changing. So it's kind of, it'll it be is. interesting to see what happens in like, yeah, two years. <laughs> yeah, it can, be, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Like obviously innovation is great, but the, the problem with innovation is you have to remember it's always forcing something else out. You know, like when, when those McDonald's kiosks are, you know, people just like electronically ordering and everything's served up that way. Like those are jobs that aren't in place. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, we've already seen it like kind of the customer service realm when, you know, you call in and you get a, a you know, you don't actually get a real person. You get somebody um, who's, you know, and it's an electronic voice. So there are all these different things that we really, we can't project. So things are challenging and you know, to, to my earlier point, like just looking 10 years out to me is comical. Like my, my daughters are two and a half years old. I can't imagine what things are going to be like when they're almost teenagers. <laughs> um, so last question, cause I think it will be kind of a good place to end. Yeah. If you had to give a Ted talk on something that's not related to fitness and health, what would it be? Wow. Yeah. That's, an, that's a really, really good one. Um, I would say I would talk about value addition versus value extraction because I think that's a it's a business concept that a lot of people in the fitness industry don't understand really, really well. I think we have a lot of really heavy value extraction models um, where they just try to basically monetize customers as much as they possibly can in a short amount of time instead of looking at it from the long game perspective of finding out ways to over deliver and you know give people greater perceived value as compared to um you know what they're paying so like a case in point like um one of the things that's interesting is uh so our massachusetts facility in the summer a lot of times i have kids that come from all over creation um you know to to train with us they'll do like a short-term consult for three to five days and boston is really the it's the hub for baseball in the summer like the Cape Cod baseball leagues there, Fenway parks there, there's minor league games, there's a bunch of collegiate leagues and all this stuff. So like one of the things that our pro players can do when they come to Fenway park is, um, if they had to leave tickets for somebody, they have to pay taxes on them. But, um, batting practice passes actually don't cost a penny. So, um, you know, if kids want to get on field before the game, like they can get there at like five o'clock and, you know, go on field and see what's going on. And then, you know, basically then they go to the game afterwards. So, um, invariably like, you know, a couple times every month we have a kid who comes from out of town who's never been to Fenway park. And when they go, we, we make sure we get them some batting practice passes so they can have like a, a pretty cool experience of being on a major league field, watching BP up close and all that stuff. And like, doesn't at, we don't charge them anything for it. It doesn't cost us anything or, you know, really it, it's the cost of one of our pro guys. It's time just to write their name down on a BP pass. But like what that means for, for a kid, you know, who comes from across the country to, you know, to have that once in a lifetime experience and make it better. And then at the same time, you know, our office manager is basically saying, Hey, the best bets to park here. There's a great restaurant here. You can check out, like it doesn't in any way 
change the training that we deliver or anything like that, but it's a way that we can enhance that experience on a whole other level. So um, that's what I would talk about. I'd talk about finding ways where you can add value to clients and really stand on your head to over deliver so that they feel like no matter what they pay with you, it's a massive bargain. No, that's really good. Like that's what clients look for is like the little things. It's not like how awesome your program is and how strong they get. It's like the experience and the relationship and the small things that you don't think of. Like, like for me, for example, like every Christmas I handwrite like Christmas cards for every single client. And it's like, they get shocked. Like you took the time to do that. I'm like, yeah, why not? Like it's the small things. And I, you know, the other thing is, uh, when I look back at, uh, a lot of the, um, like the success we've had, like at one point I actually spoke with one of the agents that we work with. I mean, we're talking about an agency that probably does $400 million in contracts every year for baseball players. And one of their agents is a good friend of mine. And I, I asked him, I was like, Hey, what's the, uh, why do you refer to us? Why do you like our, us seeing your guys so much? You know, I expected him to say, you know, baseball specific expertise or results. You know what his answer was? It was accessibility. He knew that when he called, I answered the phone. He knew that if he had a question about a player that didn't even train with me and needed some direction, then I I would pass it along. He knew that like like he texted me last week saying that they had like a marketing opportunity. He wanted to know if I had any players who were in double A with a specific organization. So like we'll stand on our heads to help them. That we don't make money on that. Like, but we can do things that other people can't do. Like I can reach out to teams. And I, I got a, a free agent signed three weeks ago with a major league team because I had a good relationship that that strengthened his case. So like when you have those abilities to add value and, and I know there are going to be like a lot of trainers here who are like, I don't hang out with professional athletes all day. I can't do this for you. Like you absolutely can do stuff. Like you can, we had a client who had MS and I went online and I researched everything I could find about MS and I printed him out some studies so that he could read it and feel about, feel better about what we were doing exercise wise while he was going through that. Um, we have a client who owns a, an awesome Italian restaurant down here. So occasionally I'll, I'll text him to call in a favor and get somebody like a reservation on a Saturday night when they might be booked up. Like everybody has these opportunities to over deliver. It doesn't just have to be tickets to a baseball game or something like that. They're, they're, they're tremendous opportunities to over deliver for people. But the problem is that I think a lot of clients are too busy trying to look look at the dollar signs instead of looking around the dollar signs. Um, you know, and, and there are ways to add value instead of just extracting it. Definitely. Uh, so very last question. Can you tell the audience where they can find you online? If you have any projects coming up, speaking engagements and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, ericcressy.com E R I C C R E S S E Y is kind of my hub online. Um, there's, you know, a pretty frequent blog updates and newsletters that go out and those are all free. Um, and then on social media, just Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, it's just at Eric Cressy. Um, so you can find me on those ones. Um, got some different stuff in the works, but nothing that's, that's, you know, so close to completion right now that it probably warrants a uh, discussion here. But, um, yeah, I'm, I try to be super accessible, so if, if folks reach out, um, I'll always do my best to, to answer their emails and their tweets and stuff like that. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. No problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that's going to wrap up episode 42 with Eric Cressy. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one. As you can tell, he's been in our industry forever, and he has a really good point of view when it comes to business people and just everything in general in life so if you have any questions feedback you know check out the website uh cut to shit get fit.com email me and even if you want to say what's up i'm always going to answer until next time you guys